Well, I've got some shocking information that may be of interest to you. I know that you will have a hard time believing this. My children are not perfect. They do things wrong sometimes. They have in the past. There have been things that they knew were rules in the house and they didn't follow those rules. There have been times where they were told to do something and they didn't do something or they were told not to do something and they did do something. Now, your kids probably never had that problem. And I know your grandkids never had that problem. My kids have had that problem. And when they have, and they knew I found out, there was a little bit of fear that went on. Right? I mean, they knew what was coming. I, I, I didn't count to three. It wasn't none of that with me. Maybe that's how you do things or, or whatever. No, one, two, no, 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 no. When I said don't, that was one, two, and three. That was all she wrote. That was all you needed. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't time out. Maybe that worked for y'all. That just wasn't in my plan. I, I didn't have time for time out. I had time for one thing. Okay? And I won't tell you what that is because we're going to be recorded and somebody might turn me into the authority. So we're just not going there. But there wasn't any time for no time out. There was just time for one thing. There were times where I would walk in and my, my kids would be in the middle of doing something that they knew they weren't supposed to do. And all you could just see the eyes bulge. You could see the fear coming over. Oh, oh no. They knew what was happening. They knew what was coming their way. There were a lot of things that they may have been scared of about the, about the future because of what they had done. But one thing that I would bet, I, we could probably have a conversation. You can go and interview my children if you want to. I mean, you can, listen, you can go ask them whatever you want to. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'll tell you that right up front. But I'm guessing, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I could vouch for my children that there was one thing that they were never, ever worried about when they did something wrong. They were never worried about me disavowing them and throwing them out of the family. That, was ne that never crossed their mind. Spanking? Yep. Pain? Yep. Getting, you know, like weeks of punishment? Yep. Getting thrown out of the family? No. Not here. Not with Samuel. And you know, if, if you being evil know how to give your children good things, how much more your heavenly Father would do for us? You see, we started talking last week about this concept of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the, of the, of the saints. Once you are saved, once you are in the family, you are never outside of the family for all of eternity. And we looked at, we looked at, uh, I believe I remember right, there were nine proofs that we walked through out of the Bible, took notes, hopefully you have those notes, hopefully you have them with you. I don't expect you to remember all nine, I don't remember all nine, I don't expect you to remember all nine, that's why we have notes. And by the way, if you're watching online today and maybe you missed that message, that message is still, uh, it is still in the archives on our website, on our Facebook page, and on YouTube, and so any form or fashion that you could that you can pull that up. We invite you to go through and listen to that message. But I didn't finish it because I wanted to continue to talk about this concept because there are so many things, uh, so many different ways that people like to look at this particular subject. 
And so I talked about the proofs last week of eternal security. That's just the, that's just the terminology that I'm using to talk about this doctrine. And, um, and again, other people might use other terms. That's the term I'm, that I'm using. And we looked at the proofs for eternal security last week. And today, I want to talk to you about the power behind eternal security and the problems that people have with eternal security. Because I want to, I just want to, let's, let's talk about this. Let's throw this out there. Let's be intellectually honest and upfront about what is out there. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. So I want to talk to you, first of all, about the power. And by the way, I hope you still have that, uh, I hope you have that outline that, uh, that you're able to receive on your way in. You can have those, uh, you can print those out under the resources tab right next to uh, the, this, uh, the, the video for this message. You can print that out and be able to follow along with what we will be talking about this morning and where we will be finding this. So I want us to talk about, first of all, this morning, the power behind eternal security. And for that, I'd like for you to turn to the small epistle called First, First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 5, and Peter is going to address this subject for us. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. It reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now notice that there is not conditions placed upon this. It's not if this happens. It is for the believer, this is truth. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It will not pass away, fade away, and it is reserved in heaven for you. Now, how is that possible? Look at verse 5 who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. It is a fact. And he points that out here for us, 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 5. Now, here's the power that we have behind eternal security. The first thing that we find here in verse 5 is that we are protected. That word protected literally means guarded. We are guarded. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul uses the same word, and it's translated in, in Galatians chapter 3 as in kept in custody. Now, the way that we might picture this in our society today that might be a little bit better known is what we like to call protective custody. When somebody is uh, when somebody's testifying against somebody or something like that, and they have to be they have to be guarded at all times. They will put uh, they'll put a detail on them to where nobody can get to them. Now, the unfortunate thing for us uh, in in our media driven culture today is that most of the time when we think about protective custody, we think about some movie you know that uh, somebody is turning the mob in or the mafia or whatever, and they put, a, they put a detail on them that's, you know, there's a police car out front and there are two guards that are by the, on the front porch and one's even sleeping inside on the, on the couch. And somehow the bad guy is able to dupe the policeman to go into a different place or whatever, and, and uh, they sneak in through a back window and they, they get to that person anyway that's in protective custody. 
And so protective custody kind of kind of falls apart on the movie screen. Now, it's unfortunate for us to understand this, but we have to understand we're talking about the protective custody of God who encompasses us, who encircles us, and nobody's going to fool him, and nobody's going to get around him, and nobody's going to overpower him or take him by surprise. God has you in protective custody. That's what he means when he says that you are protected. The second word that we have here that is, that is valuable in this particular verse is the word power. That's what I would have you write down there in your outline. The second word is power. This is God's power. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, and we kind of alluded to it last week, is when we are talking about our sin ripping us away from God's family and taking us to where we once were enjoying salvation to now because of our sin we are not enjoying salvation anymore, we have to ask ourselves, what is more powerful? Is our sin stronger than God's? That's really what the question comes down to. There in your outlines, you don't have to turn to it, but there in your outline if you are taking notes, John chapter 10. John chapter 10, uh, Jesus says these words beginning in verse 28. John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The, the, only, the only way that you will be separated from God, the only way that you will be separated from your salvation, the only way that you are able to be saved at one point and not be saved at another is if there is something that is more powerful than God that ripped you out of His hands. And I'm just telling you right now, my sin, as bad as it is, as wrong as it is, and as powerful as it is, it is not stronger than the power of God. And neither is yours. There is nothing that you have done. There is nothing that you could do. There's nothing that you could dream up that would be more powerful than the hands of God who is holding you in his family. The power of God. He says that you're protected. You're protected with what? You're protected with power, with God's power. And then the third, the, the third blank there is the period of time. Somebody might say, well, yeah, that's, that's good. It might last for a little while, but, you know, after a while you, you stay away and you, and, uh, and, and you, you know, you denounce God and denounce your salvation and those kind of things, well, he's, he, he's just going to let you go. But notice the period of time that Peter has. First Peter chapter 1, verse, verse 5, he says, you're protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed when? In the last time. The last thing that's going to happen before you enter into heaven. Proof. Here, here it is. The period of time is the last time you will be entered into the presence of God. This is the power behind eternal security. It's not because I said so. It's not because Southern Baptist said so. It's because God said so. God has given us the promise, and he has the capability to hold on to that promise and to make good on that promise. If you have ever been saved, you are still saved to this day. Now we've got proofs, and there is a power behind those proofs that can make it happen. But I also want to be, I also want to be fair, and I want to look at the problems that some people have with eternal security. Because there are, there are a number of people, 
And I mentioned this last week. There are a number of people who believe that you can be saved here and then at some point in time you can do something that is so heinous, so awful, or, or just a, 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 by an act of your will and you can no longer be saved. There are people who believe that. There are whole denominations that believe that and that teach that. And I don't really, I, I was going to mention them, but I don't think that that's really healthy. I don't think that helps anything. But there are full denominations that teach that you have to be saved. Once again, you can be saved, and then you'll do something terrible, and you'll do something bad, and, and uh, you'll lose that salvation, and then you have to be saved again. And that's why some people in certain denominations, they can be baptized two, three, six times because they keep going in and out of their salvation. That's just kind of how it works for them. So what is the answer? What are some of the problems that people have that they'll point to? So if you go to somebody and you say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, once you're saved, you're always saved. They'll be like, oh, no, I don't think so. And they're going to point out a few disagreements. And I just want to cover what some of those, some of those might be today. The first would be a biblical argument against eternal security. In other words, there are people who are going to open up the Bible and they're going to say, see, and they're going to read it to you and be like, here it is right here in print. You can lose your salvation because of this passage right here. And, and listen, this is the strongest argument. And this is really where if there are going to be disagreements, then praise God that we can open up the Bible and have a serious, honest, open, biblical conversation. There are a lot of other things that you can get into and, 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 and we will, but, but this is where it is and should begin. Some people have a biblical disagreement with eternal security. And I just want to look at a couple of passages that they often turn to in order to show that you can lose your salvation. And so, uh, and in fact, I believe that they are there in your outline, and so you can, be, you can be ready for those. The first comes out of Galatians chapter 5, and it's, it is, in that uh, verse is a very popular phrase that is used to equate in their minds to losing your salvation. Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 4. In fact, let's, let's just back up for the sake of context. Let's back up to, verse, to the first verse. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Very important phrase in the context. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every, every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting the hope of righteousness and, and so on. There, and there's that phrase, fallen from grace. And people who, who believe that you can lose your salvation, they'll look at that, that, that phrase and they'll say, see? You can fall from grace. And what are you going to say to that? Man, listen, it's important to understand the context in which Paul uses this phrase so that it can help us understand what he means when he uses this phrase because it has nothing to do with you losing your salvation. You see, the problem that Paul had here was you had, you had a certain group of people who were invading the church, they were coming into the church, and they were saying, you know what, it's great that you've accepted Jesus. It's great that you've repented of your sins and that you've been saved. But you know what? Since we're coming out of Judaism, it's really going to be important that you also receive circumcision. That's going to help you be like more saved. That's going to help you be more acceptable in the eyes of God. And if you don't receive circumcision, there's going to be, you know, you're probably not totally saved. 
And Paul steps in and he says, why are you going to bound yourself once again under that Old Testament law? That's what he meant by that yoke of slavery in the first verse. He says, if you go through and you receive, you receive circumcision, you're going backwards. You're not moving forward. You're not getting closer to God. You're going backwards. You are falling from this idea that, that we are saved by grace. You are falling from grace. You're not falling from your salvation. You are falling from a doctrine of God's goodness to where you are now, you're now saying, oh yeah, it's God's grace, but I also have to add to it by doing certain things from the law. Paul says, oh, that, that's not how this works. We are, we are saved by grace through faith alone. That's it. Grace alone. Not grace plus whatever you can add to it. Not grace plus the Ten Commandments. Not grace plus circumcision. When you do that, you are falling from a doctrine of grace. And that is not of Christ. Nowhere, nowhere in that passage does it suggest anything about losing salvation. Falling from grace is, a fallen, is falling from a belief in grace and grace alone. You're adding to, and you're putting yourself then in slavery. And that's not what Christ has for you. That's not what Christ has for any of us. This is the only time that we find that phrase in the New Testament, and it is referring to what people believe, not whether or not they are saved. There's another passage that is an even stronger passage that so can be deceiving. Hebrews chapter 6, and I invite you to turn, if you will, to that passage. And it's going to have a lot of the same meaning behind it. Now let's understand, first of all, as you're turning there, let's understand the context of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to former Jews who had been saved. I guess they were Jewish Christians. I don't, I, unfair to say former Jews, but they were, they were uh, formerly just of Judaism, but they had come to understand that Christ was their Messiah. But they were being tempted to kind of go backwards, just like we saw in the book of Galatians. Their, their temptation was to, was to kind of, well, you know, I've, I've kind of I've seen what Christ has, but, but there's also all these rules that are over here, and maybe, maybe I need to really be following the rules. Maybe it's really about the rules, because, you know, over here, over here in, uh, when it's just about Jesus, when it's just about grace, when I'm, when I'm just identifying as a Christian, times are getting real tough here. I'm getting persecuted. I've got family members who are dying for the faith. Maybe this thing isn't working out quite like we thought. Maybe we should just come back over here to just being called a Jew because we have special protection under Roman law over here. This life would be a little bit easier. And so the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know, the writer of Hebrews writes this long book. And he's saying, look, you, you don't, I, I understand that times are tough over here. But you need to understand that Jesus is better than anything that you ever had over here. He's better than the law. He's better than the sacrificial system. He's better than the priesthood. He's better in every single way that you can think of. You need to stick with Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Now, let's look at what he reads. He, and there, people who want to say you can lose your salvation, they'll turn to several different passages in the book of Hebrews. But this would be... This would be the main one that they would look at more than likely. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For in the case of those who had once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come 
and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Ouch! I mean, doesn't that suggest that they might lose their salvation? Now, there are different ways that people would look at this. There are a lot of people who would take the, the easy route, the easier route. And I'm not saying that this isn't the case. But the easier route is for some, when someone says, well, he's talking about people who were never saved to begin with. These are people who they kind of they looked into it. They kind of tested the waters. They listened to what Christians had to say. And they were like, no thanks. I appreciate it, but no thanks. After all, after all, through this whole book, all the way up through chapter 6 and verse 3, he's been talking to you, 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 talking about fellow believers. Suddenly he gets to, chap- he gets to chapter 6 and verse 4 and he begins to talk about they, them. He begins to talk in, what, in, in English what we call the third person. And so he's probably not even talking about true believers to begin with, and maybe that's true. There are, by the way, if you subscribe to that, there are a lot of very smart, I mean, people who are a lot smarter than I am, a lot of very smart people who will teach you that that is the case. And so maybe it is. But I'm looking at the phrasing that he's, that he's using here. I'm looking at the description that he has given. First of all, they've been enlightened. You skip on to Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 10, and he's going to talk about them being enlightened, and he is specifically, I mean, it's obvious that he's talking about people who are saved there. So for the sake of continuity, it's kind of hard to say that he's going to use one word to describe people who are unsaved, and then later on use that same word to describe people who are saved. just doesn't seem to be right. The same thing with the word partakers. He's already used that phrase twice in this letter to talk about people who are saved. Partakers of the Holy Spirit, I believe, and partakers in another way. He's obviously referring to people who have been saved, and so it's kind of, for the sake of continuity, I don't think it would be, it just seems like here to use the four descriptions that he's giving, he's talking about people who are genuinely saved. And in fact, it actually strengthens the argument of eternal security, not tears it down. Because if you look, and he's, he's talking about people who, who have been saved, and they've, um, it says that uh, they have been enlightened, and they've tasted of this heavenly gift, and they are partakers of of the Holy Spirit. It's hard, to, it's hard to argue with that one. And they've tasted of the good word of God and the powers that are to come. But now they've looked, they've kind, they've kind of taken stock and they've said, you know what, this Christian life thing is rough, man. It's rough. You've got to give up everything to come do this thing. But over here, you just got to follow a few rules. And so it's kind of easy to kind of divert back and to fall to where I came from. It's really a lot the, the, the passage seems to suggest that a whole lot more than simply saying that they were never saved to begin with. So, now, what is it that's going to happen when they do that? It says it is impossible for them to renew, to, to renew them again to repentance. Now, here's the, here's the first problem that people are going to have. People who say that this is the passage that says you can lose your salvation. I don't know. Now, there are people, I, I have no doubt that there are people who are out there who are like this. But I personally don't know anyone And I know that there's no prominent denomination that teaches that once you lose your salvation, you can never get it back. I don't know of anyone who does that. I don't know. There's no denomination that teaches that. They all say, well, you can lose your salvation, but if you'll repent, you can get it back. 
Now, if this passage, if this verse is saying that, that, they've, fallen, that they've fallen away, it's also saying that they can never come back to repentance. And that really, really kind of flies in the face of what most people who say you can lose your salvation flies in the face of what they ultimately believe. And you know why? Because this passage isn't talking about salvation. There's a repentance that, that is in reference to salvation, but there's also a, 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 a repentance that is not in reference to salvation. In fact, you and I talk about repenting all the time, repenting of our sins. Does that mean that we're saved every week? Does that mean that every time that we sin and we repent of that sin that we're being saved every single time? No, there's a repentance that is not related to salvation. I mean, it's an outcome of salvation, but it doesn't have a direct effect on our salvation. Repentance, you know what the word repentance literally means? The word repentance literally means to change your mind. A change of mind. That's why uh, some of y'all still like the King James Version. I like the King James. I, I grew up on King James. Uh, listen, by the, listen, by the time I was in sixth grade, I actually understood King James. Because, you know, like little kids, they, they understand foreign language, right? And so a lot of people, they, they like King James. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it talks about, on several different occasions, it talks about God repenting. Does that mean God did something wrong? That mean that God sinned and so he had to get himself right, had to get right with himself? No. It just meant a change of mind. Because that's what repentance means. Now, in this passage, that's exactly the reference that we're talking about. If they've come over here and they have experienced the grace of God and the goodness of God and the word of God has been illumined to them and they have been a partaker of the Holy Spirit and then they want to fall away and go back to their old way of life because it's an easier way of life. And they are, they are, in essence, saying that Jesus died for nothing. He's not saying that they lose their salvation. He's saying it, it becomes an impossibility to change their mind back again. He is warning them, if you, if you go backwards, you're, you're not going to come forward again. You're not, you're not going to come to the realization that you need Jesus again. It's not going to happen. He says, okay, so let, let, me, let me give you a scenario. Let's just say, uh, let's just say, I'm, I'm just going to use Mark, just off the top of my head. I really hadn't planned on doing this, but I think I can use Mark because we've been able to witness Mark's, uh, his, his, uh, his character and his integrity here at our church. Mark has been around for a long time. He's done the church thing for a long time. He's been to school. He's been to seminary. He's heard messages. He's read books. He's seen videos. He knows all about the Christian faith. And let's just say that one day Mark up and decides, you know what, uh, I think, that, uh, I think that I would rather go off and, uh, and kind of live for the world. Now, it's kind of hard to envision Mark doing that, and that's why I use him as an example. But let's just say that he decides he's just going to go off and he's going to party it up, and he's going to live hard, and he's just going to have a great, great life like that. And, and Clayton over here, he's, he's, uh, he's chairman of the personnel committee, and he comes, he comes to me and he says, uh, he says Lane, you, uh, you know, you're the pastor, you need to do something about this. You know, you need to go and sit down and have a talk with him. And, and uh, after all, you know, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, you know, you want to restore, uh, restore someone to the faith. And we've, we've read in James recently. You want, and so I go, to, and I go and I sit down with Mark. And I'm like, Mark, l listen, man, don't you know what the Bible says? He's like, yeah, I, I know what the Bible says. Man, you, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, yeah, I, I know what the Bible says. But Mark, man, you, you've seen people who've gone down this path and you know what the end is like for them. He's like, yeah, yeah, I have seen it. I've seen it. 
But his mind's already made up. What, what are you going to go and tell Mark that he hasn't already heard before? How are you going to convince him that this is not the way to go? Because he's, because he's going to have to get a different job? So? He's already heard everything that you had to say. He's beyond convincing. He's beyond repentance. Because he's not going to change his mind now. His mind is already made up. I was over here. I saw it. I, I, was, I was a partaker of it. But it's just a lot easier over here. And so I'm going to go backwards. But man, don't you know what the Bible says? Yeah, I do. Don't you know what Jesus did for you? Yeah, I do. But my mind's already made up. I'm going back. I'm just going back. And if this passage does anything, if it does anything, it strengthens the argument for eternal security because nowhere in this passage does he say that an individual who is going to renounce this in order to go back to this, nowhere in there does it say that he loses his salvation. Nowhere. There can't be a stronger argument than that. Biblically, Biblically speaking, all the proofs that point toward it say, once saved, always saved. All the proofs that people want to say point against it aren't any proofs at all. In fact, they only strengthen our argument. And so that leads to a, that leads to a couple of other things, and I'll get through these fairly quickly. Uh, that leads to a few other uh, disagreements or arguments against eternal security. The second is this. It is practical. Won't people willfully sin. Take, take for example, what did I just get finished saying? Someone who is over here and they've tasted all the goodness of God and they were truly saved, but then they look out at the world and they say, man, I think I really want that. And so they go after that and I'm up here saying they are still going to be saved. It doesn't matter how far they go. It doesn't matter what they say about this former life. They are still going to be saved. What's going to keep people from just going nuts then? Won't people willfully sin if once saved, always saved is the case? And I've heard, I've, I, listen, I've heard a lot of people say, maybe not using those same words, but I've, I've heard that argument time and time again. Let me, let me, give, you, let me give you three reasons why that's, a, why that's a bad, bad way to lean whether or not we keep our salvation. Number one is we have what we call a lordship salvation. In other words, I'm calling out to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we, talk, we, we loosely use those words. We like the Savior part, but we're not so hip on the Lord part. Well, let me just tell you something. It's all a package deal. And a Lord, a Lord is someone who has authority over you. So when we buy into this thing and we get into this thing, we're calling out to Him as Lord, and we must live for Him. The second is this. We receive a new nature, and a new nature plus the Holy Spirit equals fruitfulness. I, I've, the, the best example I know comes out of Colossians chapter 1. I, I don't think that's in your, uh, in your outline. You can write that down, write down that verse. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and listen to what Paul has to say. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has 
been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Naturally speaking, when we are saved, naturally speaking, we are, we are uh, receiving the grace, we are receive, receiving the word, and we are increasing in fruitfulness. That is the natural progression of our salvation. But then also, if someone says, you know, if they're like, oh, well, hey, if I'm saved, now I just get to go do whatever I want to. Well, understand, you bought into him as Lord. Number two, if it's, if it's genuine and it's true, more than likely you are going to be growing in your fruitfulness. And then number three, when we are saved, we, ha we have new motivations for living. New motivations for living. Here's the first one. This is what you put in your blank. And that is to love God, to please him. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. I think I've used, I may have used this, uh, this uh, illustration years ago, or I, I've only been here three, so I've, it's not like ten years ago. I think I've used this since I've been here. I'm not sure. April the 8th, 1995. I told my wife, no matter what you do, we're together. I don't care what you do. You can hate me. You can say whatever you want to. We're together. It's us. Now, that's a, that's a, a promise that I made. Now, what if she, you, do you think that she is going to take that promise and you think she's going to say, oh, well, he said it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't really matter. So I get to, man, I get to go run around on him if I want to. Hey, he said it doesn't really matter, so I get to speak to him however I feel like. I mean, after all, he made me a promise. That's not how marriage works. It's not what it does. You get together and you make, you make those promises to each other and they don't, they don't like break you apart. They're intended to bring you together. That's what salvation is like. When we said I do to Jesus, there's a love, there's a, there's a pleasing, there's a, I, I, desire to, I desire to please Him in what I do. Our second motivation for living Oddly enough, and some people are uncomfortable with this, but the Bible isn't, and that is rewards. Rewards. Listen, if, if, if God wanted you to be put off by rewards, if He didn't want you to be motivated by rewards, He simply wouldn't mention them. He mentions them for a reason. Because He wants, you to, he wants it to motivate you to greater Christ-likeness and to greater living and commitment to Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then the third motivation for living is our purpose. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is what motivates the true believer to living. So won't people willfully sin? Yeah, I mean, if they, if, if, they hear, if they hear that, hey, I can go live however I want and still be, and still be saved, and that, that's an excitement for them, you've got to wonder if there was ever really a heart change in the first place. The next problem that some people have with eternal security, and that is an emotional problem, and that simply means that they are saying in their minds or in their hearts, I don't feel saved. I don't feel saved. Folks, there are a lot of feelings that we have. We are a feeling kind of people. Well, most of us, not everybody, but most of us, we are a feeling kind of, we feel emotions. 
I mean, we worry about stuff that wakes us up in the middle of the night. We believe that the sky is falling, and rarely does it turn out that way. We have this joy. We get all happy and excited about stuff. We get excited that we're going to be making a lot of money, and then we find out that money doesn't bring us happiness. We get mad about stuff. You think that you don't need somebody, and then when you throw them aside, you realize that you do. We have love, and we have feel these, these emotions of love. Even when that person is abusive. There are a lot of things that we feel, but it doesn't necessarily reflect reality. And if you're sitting here today and you are listening to my voice, whether it's in person, whether it's online or a recording down the road, and you're sitting there thinking, I just don't feel saved anymore. Let me just tell you something. If there was a day that you were saved, your feelings are, are irrelevant to whether or not you are truly saved. My friend, you are held by the power of God. Emotions are, I, I think this, is, this line is in your outline. Emotions are poor indicators of truth. Emotions are poor indicators of truth. And then finally, is experiential. Experiential. And what I mean by that, you, you see a blank there, and it's actually a blank that is meant to stay blank. Because I will, anytime I have this conversation with someone who does not believe in eternal security, there always comes out the scenarios. Well, what about if somebody was saved, but then they did this? They became a serial killer. Or they renounced their faith. Or they talked bad about Jesus. And then, of course, then there are, then there are the really ones that we have a difficult time with. You know what? I knew somebody. And I mean, they were always, they were always there. And they were really, truly saved. I know that they were saved. And yet then they, then they decided they were going to go in a different direction. And they did this and that and the other. And they, they go through this big, long scenario. So there's this, what about blank? And maybe you know someone like that. But what about this particular situation? Well, I can tell you, if they were truly saved, they are truly saved. And then you have this story of many people in our midst, kind of like the, kind of like the parable that Jesus told of the ones who took the word with great excitement, but then the cares and the tribulations of the world choked it out. Here's how John said it. In 1 John 2.19, these people really did not belong to our fellowship, and that is why they left us. If they had belonged to our fellowship, they would have stayed with us. But they left so that it might be clear that none of them really belonged to us. May the Word of God be what teaches us, not our feelings, not our thoughts, not our circumstances, not our scenarios, but may the Word of God be what resonates in our hearts and reminds us that once we are His, we are always His. Now, the question that has to be asked is, are you His? Has there ever been a time in your life 
where you repented unto salvation, repented of your sins, acknowledged them before God, acknowledged His dying on the cross for you, believed that He rose again, that He had the power to raise again on the third day, that He overcame sin, death, and hell, and that He can do the same thing in your life. And you call out to Him in repentance as Lord and Savior and give and surrender your life to Him. If you've never done that, we invite you to do that. And you can do that there in your seat. You can do that there at home. You simply bow your head and you acknowledge your sin and what He did for you. And once you receive Him, and if you have received Him, welcome to the family and welcome to the family for all eternity. Thank God, thank God that His blood is stronger than my sin and will hold me for all eternity because He's the only hope that I've got, and He's the only hope that you've got. God, we do thank You for the blood of Christ. We thank You for the gift that salvation is. We also thank You for the, the confidence that we can have, the security that we can have that is found only in You. It's not in our works. We didn't gain this salvation, and we can't lose it. We thank You for the blood of Jesus that makes it all possible. And God, I pray for that person who may be in our midst who doesn't know you. I pray that your spirit would reveal to them their need for you and that they would call out to you. And God, I, I also pray for that person who received you, but they're looking at their lives and they see the sin. And they see how, how far they've gone and they see how long they have been gone. And they're wondering if you could possibly still love them and still accept them and that, uh, just wondering if eternity is still theirs. And Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray that it gives them comfort. And I pray that it gives them uh, such, a, such an overwhelming sense of love and devotion to, to you that they would forsake sin, not, not, uh, not go further into it, but that they would run to you, knowing that you are the only one who gives true, meaningful, eternal, and abundant life. God, comfort us with these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing song this morning, Lord, I Need You.